Listener Production. G'day and welcome to Behind the Hits, the inside story on some of music's most iconic songs featuring stories from the artists who made them. I'm Brendan Anakin. When it comes to iconic names in music, they don't come much bigger than Queen and David Bowie. In this episode of Behind the Hits, I'm going to take you inside a few of the songs that have helped to not only define these artists, but define a generation. To go behind the hits of a band like Queen, well, let's just say we'd be here for a long time. So in this episode, I'm going to take you behind just three of the songs that have helped make Queen one of music's most enduring bands. And what better place to start than with the song many would say defines the band. One of the best-selling singles of all time, Bohemian Rhapsody was a Freddie Mercury masterclass in music composition, comprising multiple parts and genres. It was part heavenly choir, part ballad, part opera, and part, well, downright dirty rock song. In many ways, the song had its origins in the kinds of music that Freddie and Queen guitarist Brian May grew up with. Freddie and I both grew up in, in an England which was very dominated by sort of light classics and musicals, so we were pretty drenched in that stuff, although we probably wouldn't have admitted that we liked it when we were kids, but it was sort of in there, and I think when we started to be to make rock music, which was our own music, that those ingredients were in there, and we sort of didn't shy away. So there's this strange mixture of, of kind of classical bits and pieces and, and music. In, in, musical is a very English thing, and um, it all came together to make this strange tapestry that we were able to weave. But Freddie is, is the genius of Bohemian Rhapsody, without a doubt. Yeah, we all helped, but it was his baby. That baby was born out of a collection of random music and lyrics that Freddie had written when he was studying graphic art and design at Ealing Art College in London, a collection that all took shape in Freddie's mind well before he walked into the studio. All credit to Freddie for that one, because he visualised the whole song in his head, and as it is, with all the pieces in it, he had it completely mentally finished and all written down on the back of telephone directories. That's Queen drummer Roger Taylor. At the time, no one except Freddie knew quite how the song would come together. We were all already beginning to be quite separate at that point, and we used to come in with ideas pretty well mapped out. I used to come in with all sorts of structures written down that I wanted the group to try. Freddie used to come in with sheets of notepaper with vocal harmonies written out in them. So Freddie had a very powerful vision of that song before we ever got into it. We wanted it to sound like a huge choir. The band's audio engineer originally allocated just 30 seconds for Freddie's grand idea of an opera section. But as the band kept adding vocal, after vocal, after vocal, that opera section would eventually double in size. The recording required that many overdubs, the master tape became thin enough for the band to see through. The final version of Bohemian Rhapsody came in at a whopping 5 minutes and 55 seconds, almost double the length of many hit songs being played on radio in 1975. Due to its length, Queen's record company refused to release the track as a single. But when British DJ Kenny Everett played the song 14 times over two days on his popular London radio show, the listener response was so strong that Bohemian Rhapsody would eventually be released as a single on the 31st of October 1975. And the rest, as they say, is history. I'm Brendan Anakin, and our Queen journey continues with a track that, at the time, eclipsed even Bohemian Rhapsody as the band's most popular song. Surprisingly, the biggest step we ever made in sales was Another One Bites the Dust, because that crossed over to the, the black audience, and it doubled our, our market, really. 
for a certain length of time. It's the biggest record we ever had. Strangely enough, it, it wasn't Bohemian Rhapsody. Another one bites the dust was a massive departure from Queen's usual sound, and the band weren't convinced it should even be a single. But when the song started getting a big following amongst American disco fans, with many convinced it was a black man singing lead vocals, releasing it as a single became a no-brainer. The song went from sales of 1 million to 3 million inside a week, and in the US, it would go on to top the Billboard Hot 100 chart in October 1980. And here's an interesting twist. The song's bass line is 110 beats per minute, making it perfect for training medical staff on the correct number of chest compressions while performing CPR. You're listening to Behind the Hits. I'm Brendan Anakin, and in this episode, we're taking you inside some of the hit songs of Queen. Released in 1981, Queen's collaboration with David Bowie on the song Under Pressure pretty much came about by accident. Here's Roger Taylor. Bowie used to live in Switzerland and we actually bought a studio there. So we became quite close friends, especially Freddie and I with David. And, and David used to drop by the studio, it's as simple as that. And one day we were playing old songs, some of our, some of his, some old cream things. and. We were just having a nice time in the studio quite late at night and all of a sudden he said, well, why don't we ride our own? And so we did. In little more than 24 hours, the song had taken shape, built around that distinctive bass line from John Deacon. Freddie and Bowie jumped into the voice booth separately to record their vocals, but without the other hearing what they were doing. With two egos the size of cathedrals, there was bound to be tension. And during the final mixing session for the song in New York, Freddie and Bowie argued that heavily the project was nearly shelved. And maybe that's why they never did an album together. It was a one-off thing, and it's just... Um, people always assume that there's going to be an album or whatever, but, I mean, you know, you don't want to start a group or anything. We all have things to do, and um, it was a pure coincidence and we happened to be in town at the right time and he happened to come into the studio while we were recording, and uh, we didn't really think anything was going to come of it, but um, things sort of started taking hold... And um, there you are, you got Under Pressure. Six years before the release of Under Pressure, Bowie had another famous collaboration. At a party thrown by Elizabeth Taylor, Bowie met one of his idols, John Lennon. The two started hanging out, and not surprisingly, they ended up writing a song together, based around something they knew quite a bit about, fame. It has to be said that Bowie had an uneasy relationship with fame. He wanted to be famous, but he also wanted to create what he considered to be great artistic work. He later said, Fame can take interesting men and thrust mediocrity upon them. John Lennon provided some backing vocals on Fame, a song that's credited to David Bowie, John Lennon and Bowie's guitarist Carlos Alomar. I remember very clearly the process. Uh, we had been working on stage with a thing by the, f an old single by the Flares called Foot Stomping. And uh, the riff that Carlos had developed for it, I found fascinating. And I, I kept telling, I said, that's a waste to do it on somebody else's song. We should use that riff on something. And we were playing it for John in the studio. He came down for the day and said, what do you reckon of this riff, John? Ding, 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 ding. And, and he was going, I'm... I'm, and he was playing along with it, and he was just sort of muttering to himself in a corner, I'm, and it just all fell into place. Fame, what a great, that's great, John. And it kind of came, it kind of came like that, and he carried on playing rhythm guitar, and we just put the thing together. Hey, let's do the show right here. It was a real Mickey Rooney thing, you know. It just all came together in about 15, 20 minutes, the whole backing track, and the idea of fame, and I just ran away and wrote the lyrics for it. 
And uh, the next day, John came down again and said, you know, how's it going, that one? You know, it was real. Hey, that was real good, that one, you know. Ironically, the song fame made David Bowie even more famous, becoming his first chart-topping song in the US. It knocked off Glen Campbell's Rhinestone Cowboy to hit number one in America on September 20, 1975. The song's success took Bowie by surprise, since he claimed it was his least favourite track on the Young Americans album. That opinion had changed by 1990 when a remix of the song, Fame 90, was released to coincide with Bowie's Sound and Vision world tour. Bowie believed the song had stood up well over time and thought it was quite a nasty, angry little song, and he liked that. But after Fame's chart-topping success in the mid-70s, Bowie thought it was time for a change. Every time I make an album, I tend to take the road for commercial suicide because I actually revolt against the last album that I made. So if I, especially if it's been successful, (laughs) it seems, in hindsight, I always want to do the very opposite of what that last album did, just for my own satisfaction as an artist. And I think it's to keep me in sort of desperate straits. If I get too comfortable, I write really badly. I write terrible songs. Bowie soon found himself in Berlin, working with former Roxy Music member Brian Eno. For Bowie, the master of reinvention, it was one of his most experimental periods. I've got to an era where I've been writing characters and narratives um, for maybe five years, something like that, and I was playing those characters and every year or so I would have to change character for the next character changing from Ziggy into a lad insane and eventually to the thin white duke. All those characters kept changing. Um, And it built up to a point where I had all these characters snowballing and they were all becoming one character as far as uh, the mass media was concerned in America. And it affected me and I was getting very disappointed in my writing. I thought I was getting too stylized. So I had to get back to Europe and uh, formulate a new kind of writing for myself and I needed somebody to bounce off. So I phoned up Brian Eno, uh, late of Roxy Music, uh, who was one of the, um, probably one of the keenest brains in in modern music in England, definitely, and possibly Europe. Brian Eno would end up writing the music for a song that many consider to be Bowie's finest achievement, Heroes. It was Brian's chord structure, a particular chord structure he wanted to use, so all the musicians had the chord structure. We did no rehearsals. I said, these are the chords. This is how long each, each chord goes on for, how many bars this, these chords go on for. Play around those bars now. Not many songs changed the world, but when Bowie died in 2016, the German government thanked him for helping to bring down the wall. That was in reference to Bowie's 1987 open-air concert in what was then West Berlin. The stage was right next to the Berlin Wall and Bowie could hear thousands of East Germans on the other side who'd come out in force to listen and sing along. Heroes was considered an anthem of peace and unity at the time and the Berlin Wall would come down two years later. They're jumping the fence. 100, 150, 200, 300 East Berliners are climbing over the metal fence here, making their way towards the Berlin Wall, crying, the wall is down, the wall is dead. The song Heroes told the tale of two lovers in Berlin, one from the west and one from the east. Bowie was inspired by looking out the studio window one day and seeing his producer, Tony Visconti, kissing backing singer Antonia Maas by the Berlin Wall. 
Bowie initially refused to reveal the inspiration for the song because he was protecting his producer, who was married at the time. Believe it or not, Heroes failed to crack the top 10 in Australia, the US or the UK, but it's now hailed as a classic. Bowie even released versions of the song in French and German. The German version is called Helden, which, you guessed it, means heroes in German. You're listening to Behind the Hits as we take a look at just some of the songs that make up the incredible legacy of David Bowie. After his Berlin trilogy, Bowie returned to New York to make the Scary Monsters and Super Creeps album. The working title for one of the songs was People Are Turning to Gold, which would later become the album's first single, Ashes to Ashes, and there was an unusual inspiration behind it. The song Inchworm was performed by American actor Danny Kaye in the 1952 movie Hans Christian Andersen. Bowie heard the song when he was a kid and always thought of it as sad, mournful and poignant, and it inspired Ashes to Ashes. While Bowie was making his Scary Monsters album, Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band were also at New York's Power Station Studios working on Bruce's album The River. One thing led to another, and wouldn't you know it, Roy Bitten from the E Street Band ends up playing piano on Ashes to Ashes. The song resurrects the character of Major Tom, who we first met in Space Oddity. When I was thinking of how I was going to place uh, Major Tom in, in this, hence, ten years later on, what would be the complete disillusion with the, with the great dream that was being propounded when they shot him into space ten years ago and had got such wonderful ideas. Um, this great technology was capable of putting him up there. When he did get up there, he wasn't quite sure why he'd been put there. And we left him there, but now we come to him ten years later and we find that the whole thing has soured because there was no reason for putting him up there. It was an ego, a, a technological ego which got him up there for no specific reason and just added more disaster because it was a, a, a potpourri of, of technical ideas. And so the most disastrous thing I, I could think of is that he finds solace only in some kind of heroin-type drug, uh, actually being that the, the cosmic space itself was feeding him with an addiction. And he, wanted, he wants now to return to the womb from whence he came. It's very much a 1980s nursery rhyme. And that is that it, I think 1980s nursery rhymes will have a lot to do with the 1880s, 1890s nursery rhymes, which were all rather horrid and had little boys with their ears being cut off and stuff like that. This is... The <laughs> we're getting round to that again. I think the idea of the Sesame Street nice nursery rhyme is possibly outdated. Ashes to Ashes also has a pretty incredible film clip. At the time, it was the most expensive music video ever made. Bowie directed the clip alongside a British director by the name of David Mallet, responsible for some big-name music videos during the 1980s, including clips for ACDC, Queen, Billy Idol, Joan Jett, Tina Turner and Def Leppard. The video for Ashes to Ashes features Bowie dressed as a sad vintage clown, which was a throwback to some of his earlier artistic influences. I took myself back to uh, almost, God, 12, 13 years ago when I was working with the mime company in London, Lindsay Kemp Mime Company. And the, cla the character is based very much on the character that Lindsay Kemp created, uh, which was this sort of very, very wonderful looking Victorian clown. And I took that for feeling and then looked inside of that and that's when you get the dishevelled side of the clown, the two faces of the clown. 
But it's, uh, yeah, it's a, a, again a nod backwards to um, an element that I started with. One always returns and looks back and incorporates those old things and re-evaluates them. And in this particular period, I, I was re-evaluating that. In many ways, that's what the release of Ashes to Ashes in 1980 was all about. Bowie looking back, re-evaluating his career from the time we first met Major Tom, laying the notion of Major Tom to rest, and looking forward to the next phase. I'm Brendan Anakin, and you've been listening to Behind the Hits. This episode was written by Dave Carter and Jeff Jenkins. Audio production by Mike Santos and Dan King. Produced by Dave Carter. Listener.